80s. We got one more baby shout out. Oh, this this one right here, which I have not yet seen. So I got to I got to marry this wonderful young couple. Of, it's been a few years now, and just to see the addition and you guys you guys make good parents. Looks pretty <laughs> looks pretty good. Um, I have a, another praise too for uh, marriage. Um, marriage glorifies God and. Um, and it benefits us. It blesses us. And uh, we went to the coast this week. Um, we kind of like crashed the party of Ty and Leah back there in the corner. Um, it was their one-year wedding anniversary. And uh, yeah. And just to see them together and how they, um, how they complement each other, how they, um, how they each bring strengths. Uh, they're just perfect together. And we just love this couple. They're such a, a bright spot in our lives. The way that they love God and they prioritize God is the biggest thing that, that brings us joy um, to, to witness that and watch their relationship grow because this relationship's growing with each of them. And so, like, just total blessing. Shout out to, to marriage, godly marriages, and um, what he's doing there. So, all right. Um, this is going to be pretty quick. I'm going to run through. I might talk a little fast. I'm going to move pretty quick because I got to get up to the other location for the town hall meeting. So if, if like I leave right away afterwards, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to be rude. Like I just have to go. And so we'll try to move through this quick. I know that you have your Bibles because, because you're at church. So like, like open your Bible. If you don't have one, uh, there's, there's a stack of them back there on that that back, uh, whatever that is. So grab one of those. All right. Matthew chapter, did I say 17? Did I say anything yet? 19. We're, uh, we're coming to the end of 19. I'm going to kind of break in a weird place today. Um, and the reason is because this narrative that comes out of where we are this morning actually carries on directly into, into 20, into a parable in 20. And if you know anything about me, I'm the long-winded pastor. I'm incapable of preaching like large sections of scripture and getting away with it without keeping you guys here all day. So um, I'm actually going to break in what might seem a weird spot. It'll work. Bear with me. And then you'll have Brent come in next week and pick up um, where, I, where I leave off. Verse 16 we all know this guy. We're all familiar with this story. Actually, pretty much everything we've been going through in Matthew, I think we're all pretty pr- familiar with. Verse 16 of chapter 19, let's read it. And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Interesting question. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, 
But with God, all things are possible. And that's where we're going to cut it. Um, It is generally true that this life is easier on multiple levels for the wealthy. Oh, how we hate them. It is generally true that money makes things a little easier. We've seen this in our life. We are by no means rich. We are by no means wealthy. But me and my wife got married out of high school, started having kids one after another right away, and we scraped. We scraped. Um, We would be in huge trouble if God wasn't faithful and my wife didn't make a penny go a mile. Um, Somehow... It didn't make sense on paper, but bills got paid every month as I looked at it as an impossibility, and we, we always had food in the cupboard, and we were always in a dry place with a fairly comfortable bed, and I, it just blew my mind. And as the years have gone by, we, we really have, in a lot of ways, prospered financially. Like, we don't scrape anymore, and we haven't scraped for a long time, and it's really odd Sometimes I I go like, how in the world did we get here? Like, I never thought I would experience what that felt like. But there is no doubt that it has had effects in ways on my relationship with God because things I used to depend full stop on Him for, my level of dependence has absolutely softened because I'm pretty secure over here with these things now. Um, And this is part of the challenge with money, this is part of the challenge with that, that kind of security. What's the saying? Money talks, right? This is a saying that we have in this life. If you possess it in this life, it makes things happen. It allows you to attain and it allows you to achieve some of your most current necessities. Praise God for that. But also your desires, which isn't always a, a praise. Money is heavily regarded and accepted as being one's universal passport to everywhere and everything. Thus, it tends to be on some level man's greatest pursuit. And when they get it, their achievement. There is no doubt that in this world, money opens doors, plain and simple. And yet today, in this text, we are going to look at a door that it cannot open. In fact, it may just be the thing that keeps that door closed for many people in this, in this world who love it. Remember, money itself is not bad. It's necessary. It's fine. It's like anything else. The difference is your heart towards it. Right? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money. The love of it. It's our disposition towards it. One of the most interesting things, however, in this text that kind of stood out to me as kind of odd, kind of weird, kind of interesting, is that this guy in our story today, even though he's wealthy, he's financially set, he has everything he needs, he's still interested. He's still interested in knowing that he has eternal life. That's weird to me. Like this matters to him. It matters to him. It's interesting to note that he cares about what comes next. Because a lot of times with the wealthy, all they care about is the fact that they're set up now. They don't care about what comes next. They're all in on what's going on now. They have everything they need and they're good. But this guy actually kind of cares about what's going, what, what comes next. And so we start. 
Verses 16 and 17, behold, this man, he comes to Jesus saying, "Uh, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So this guy's set up now. He's also wanting to be set up in the next life. So he, he, he approaches Jesus. He inquires of him the answer to this question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? This is the question. This is the way he frames the question, right? Emphasis, what must I do? What must I do? So this guy's an earner. And we already know that he's an earner because we know him as the rich young ruler. So this dude's probably pretty young. He's, he's actually already achieved and accomplished more for himself than most people do in their whole life, right? And so this dude's like, well, I'll just, I'll just go and tackle this next challenge of eternal life. I've done this. I can go do that, right? And so this is, this is where he's at. What, what must I do? But the truth is, like, regardless of this guy and how, how well off he is, he suffers from the same disease that everybody suffers from. We all do this. This is, a, this is our, um, our instinct, is what must I do? How do I make this thing work? How do I earn this thing, right? Um, that being that we can get to heaven, that we can earn eternal life by doing something. What must I do to get this thing? Um, and so we, we want something to accomplish. We want something to earn. We want something to perfect. Just like this guy. So he's not all that weird. This isn't just a rich person thing. This is, a, this is a human thing. This is a sinner thing. What do I do to make this thing happen? So yes, this guy is mindful of eternal life, but, but yes, his, his desire to acquire it is through performing some kind of good deed, just like everybody else we've seen come in front of Jesus um, up to this point, right? So this is, this is kind of a confident fellow, okay? Now, he addresses Jesus as teacher, which means uh, rabbi. And, and he's right in, in thinking that Jesus is someone special enough to come to and ask this kind of question, right, of, but he's wrong in his identification of Jesus. He's shooting too low, kind of. So yes, Jesus is a teacher. Yes, he is a good uh, teacher, but he's much more than that, right? And he comes and he asks this question, uh, uh, about what he can do of Jesus and calls him uh, rabbi, which is um, what prompts Jesus to direct the conversation the way that he does by responding, why do you ask me about what is good? If I'm just a teacher, why do you ask me about what is good? This also, equal, this also means basically, why do you call me good? In fact, some translations will actually say it that way. Good teacher, why do you call me good, is the question that Jesus basically asks back. So Jesus is kind of like, let's go ahead and just get this out of the way first. Before we get any farther, let's, let's get this identification thing, how you identify me, out of the way first. Which is, which is it? Am I good or am I just a teacher? Like, which, which is it? Um, and that comes out further in what Jesus says next. For there is only one who is good. There is only one who is good. Who's being implied here? God. Right? And of course, if we want to go to the, down the trail of the Trinity and the three in one, Jesus is actually speaking of himself too. But he doesn't go down that discourse with this guy. He just, God. There's only one who's good. That is God. Now, go ahead and underline this verse for yourself and for the person that you're going to talk to tomorrow. Okay? 
Because this is what we do all the time, even as Christians. So-and-so is good. So-and-so has such a good heart. Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I understand that when we do that, we're doing it comparatively to our context, like on a human level. So like someone, that just means that someone has some really neat qualities. They're thoughtful or they're gentle or they're kind. And we're saying that person's really good, right? Um, but like, like this is something that Jesus wouldn't have approved of if you said it in front of him, right? There's only one who is good. Uh, we, we, we do the how could something bad happen to a good person. That only happened once. And it's the guy that's talking right now. He volunteered for it. He signed up for it. That's the only time something bad has ever happened to something really, truly good. Someone really, truly good. That's, that's Jesus. And he's, he's kind of making this point here to this guy. This is kind of what, he, what he's basically saying. So, so by responding this way, Jesus is in effect saying to this man, like, either I am not good or I'm God. Either I'm not good or I'm God. And if God, then not just a teacher. Not just a rabbi. And I know that sounds like a lot that's implied, but that's really what's wrapped up in what Jesus is doing here and how he's directing this guy. It's an identification thing, okay? It's an identification thing. Now, I do want us to understand that by Jesus saying this this way, he does not mean that he's denying that he's God. That's not what he's doing at all. You could probably read it that way, but that's not what Jesus is doing. He's simply directing this guy towards a proper articulation, proper identification of what he means by coming to Jesus, calling him a good teacher. Okay? So basically, Jesus is saying, like, why do you come to me with this if God's the only one who's good? Why do you come to me with this? And then, of course, Jesus answers his question uh, by following with, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Basically saying, do that which the one who is good has given you to do. Got that? By the way, you guys have been with us long enough in Matthew. Law, gospel. Is he speaking law or gospel in his answer to this guy? Law. He's giving him the law. The question is, what must I do to be saved, basically, to have eternal life? And Jesus, instead of saying, just believe in me. I'm taking care of it all. By faith, believe in me. He says, go follow the commandments. He gives him law. He gives him law. So, so there's the plain, direct answer here that Jesus gives to this man. And, um, and this is the plain, direct answer that we should almost give to anybody who asks us this question. Well, I know that sounds really weird. We'll get around to this. We'll, get a, we'll come back to this. Okay. Now... Um, Let's just sum up what, what we have so far, right? Um, there, uh, in a nutshell, what we have so far from Jesus to this guy is only one is good. That's God. So do what he told you to do if you want to enter eternal life. Keep the commandments. That's what we have here so far, okay? 18 and 20. Um, so, so he says to him, the, the young man, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? I mean, this guy's, this guy's a confident little fellow. That's a, that's, a crazy, that's a crazy answer to give to God. Now, he probably doesn't realize that's who it is, 
But that, that's a crazy answer. He's making a heavy claim. And that claim is that he has aced that test. He has done those things. He's aced it, right? So Jesus gives him a, a test consisting of six of the Ten Commandments that are found in Exodus chapter 20. He gives them six of them. And this guy thinks that he passes them. Now, why six and not all ten? That's a question that enters my brain. And I'm not going to tell you right now. We'll come back to it. We'll come back to why I think Jesus did this, all right? Could be wrong. Why I think, okay? So, so Jesus tells him uh, that he needs to keep the six that are mentioned. And, and the man's response is like, yeah, I've done this. Like, been there, done that, bought the shirt. You know what I mean? Um, Like done it, which is a ridiculous response, obviously, on multiple levels. But let's just just deal with the the obvious one. Perfection. Like the dude is making a claim of perfection by saying, I keep these. And and by the way, like when when Jesus is saying, keep these, and this man is saying, I keep these, they're not saying like, I'm mindful of them. Like I know they're over here and I try as best I can to do them, and yeah, I fail sometimes, but usually I do pretty good. Um, but like, that's not keeping. Like, keeping means 100%, 100% of the time. Like, that's the standard. That is the standard of righteousness, which is why all of us are in serious trouble without Jesus. This is why all of us are in serious trouble. The law does not save. We're going to keep pushing that and keep getting that into our brains and our hearts as we go through this because Jesus keeps pushing it. He wants us to understand the difference, right? But the problem is that most people don't. This dude's like, yeah, I've kept them. I've aced it. I've done it. By the way, this is why most people end up in hell. Side note, this is a bonus. Hell is for good people. Heaven is for sinners only. Do you understand what I'm saying? We even have a shirt called Sinners Only, and a lot of times people trip out on it. In fact, Pastor Brent, don't tell him I said this. He'll probably watch it. Uh, He's like, I don't like that because of what it looks like it's saying. Sinners Only just makes it look like we're just a bunch of sloppy Christians, and we're proud of being sloppy. That we just just stumble around in a drunken mess, right? Um, Just doing stupid things, saying stupid things, living in stupid ways, and just go, ah, Jesus paid for it. No, that's not what sinners only means. It means that the only people eligible to occupy heaven are those who know they're sinners. And hell will be full of populated by people who think they're good people. That's all we mean by that. And this is kind of what we're, what we're seeing here. I said we're going to go fast. I've got to stay. Keep me, on the, keep me on the dealio here. The straight and narrow. All right, where are we? Um, now, as ridiculous as this dude's answer was, I, I'm going to be honest. Like, I don't think this guy was, was trying to lie, like, intentionally about keeping these commandments. I really don't get that here, that impression. I, I, I think he's just ignorant about what perfection really is. I think he was just ignorant about what God's standard, like, really is. Like, what God really wants. What's really required from us. I I think he was just ignorant. I think he's really convinced in his mind that he has, like, kept these commandments that Jesus gave him. And that's the problem, is that he thinks he has. That's the whole problem. Like, I think this dude really believes that he 
has perfectly kept all these. Um, it's like, where's Ray Comfort when you need him, right? Does anyone here know who Ray Comfort is? He's the Australian dude. If, you don't, if you've never seen this guy, like, he's an evangelist from Australia, and I would really like to um, try to talk like him because um, it's rad. Like, that's half, of, that's half of the entertainment value in watching this dude's videos is just listening to, like, how he talks. Um, but he, he's a full-on evangelist. Like, he just, he, he goes out and he loves people truly daily in public, but he films it all. So he goes out and he'll usually start by asking someone, just some, some stranger on the street, hey, you got a minute to talk? And then he'll be like, if you were to die today, where would you be going? Heaven or hell? And of course, everyone's like, well, I'd be going to heaven. You know what I mean? Like, I'd be going to heaven. And he's like, why? And they're like, well, because I, like, I, haven't, I haven't, like, murdered anyone. Like, I, I don't look like Hitler. So, like, like, of course I'm going to heaven. You know what I mean? And he goes, well, can, will you take a test with me, right? And, and uh, they'll be like, sure, I'll take your test. And what Ray does is he, he just walks through the Ten Commandments and asks them how they've done with them, right? And, and all of them are like, oh, I've done, I've done good with that and that and that and that until he then um, lets them in on the fact that if you're angry in your heart, that's murder. If you lust in your heart, that's adultery, right? So then he, he like shows them what, what the meaning of these things are. And then they get to the end. He's like, well, how did you do? And they're like, well, like kind of good. Like maybe got six of them good or five of them good, right? And, um, but he'll, he'll take those things that they admit to, that they've broken, and he'll go back over it with them at the end. He'll say something like this. So, so, I, so by your own self-admission, you're a thieving, lying, murderous, adulterate heart. But the way he says adulterate heart's really good. You've got to go hear it. It's on YouTube, right? And, and, then, he sa- and then he says again, like, so, like, having established all that by your own admittance, let me ask you again, if you were to die today, where would you go? And then they're all like, well, like, hell, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, they're all, you know, they're not happy about it. But, like, like, that's what Ray Comfort would do, probably, with this dude and what this dude just did. He would probably take him to task. Um, but Jesus doesn't. This is weird. Jesus doesn't. Jesus gives it to him. He lets him have it. He doesn't, he doesn't even fire back or dismantle or deconstruct this dude's claim of perfection on these six. He gives it to him. And so the man then continues, so what else? I've done these. What else, right? What do I still lack? Like, hit me with another, right? And Jesus does. Like, he knocks, he knocks him out, basically, right? 21 and 22, uh, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It is here that we see why Jesus plays along with this guy and lets him have the first six right, when it comes to his law-keeping claims. And that is because Jesus' intention was to destroy this kid in this area of unrighteousness that he knows he would not be able to argue with or ignore, that being his possessions. That being his possessions. It, 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 it would be a punch that this guy cannot block and he cannot dodge. And Jesus knew that. So he went here with it. Um, you know what I hate more than anything else? The dentist. I, I hate the dentist. More than anything else, I had to go there. Like to, so like I'm, I feel like I'm like a, not a sissy. I feel like I can tolerate pain pretty well and like uncomfortability and all that stuff. But when it comes to like mouth stuff, like I'm a, I'm a total sissy. 
It's like, what are you doing in there? Like, get out of there. You know what I mean? Everything hurts. Everything scares me. It's like even the anticipation of something hurting scares me. And I had to go two weeks ago just for like some x-rays and a basic checkup, right? And they do that thing where they they start where they open your mouth and they they begin by like getting the pokey thingy and like hitting each tooth and going like, tell me how, like, tell me how these feel. You know what I mean? So they're like hitting each tooth and they're like, how's that? And it's like, good, good, good. And then they finally hit that one and it's like, oh, right? It's like a lightning bolt, like shoots through, like just shock, right? And that's like what Jesus is doing to this dude, right? He's like going through and he's like, he's like poking each tooth and going, how's that one? And this dude's going good, good, good. And then he hits this one. It's like, ouch, ouch, right? And Jesus knew this. He knew knew what he was doing with this guy, right? Um, He says, uh, Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go and sell your stuff, Give it to the poor. Follow me. This is the one that hurt. And Jesus uses the word perfect for two reasons. Number one, because this man thought he was. Right? So Jesus plays along, gives it to him. But number two, because that is what's required for eternal life. Perfection. I feel like so many of us don't get this. Even people that have sat in the church all their lives. We think it can't really mean that. Because it's impossible. You're going to say the same thing that the disciples say at the end. Who then can be saved? So surely God didn't mean that. We, we, tend to have this, we tend to have this idea that we take the commands and we just do the best that we can with them and that at the end of the day, if, if our good or our law-keeping uh, outweighs our breaking of the law, God's going to grade on the curve and he's going to let us in. And, and, I, and I'm telling you, people, I'm telling you, I promise you, that's not true. God absolutely requires 100% righteousness, 100% of the time. And I can't even do it for an hour when it comes to thoughts and it comes to desires. I can't even do it for an hour, you know? But this is what it is. It's perfection. And Jesus is saying, if you would be perfect, do this one, right? And this is the tooth that hurt. This is the one that, that didn't work. He says, If you want to be perfect, offload your wealth and come with me. In other words, do the one thing that you're unwilling to do, that you're unable to do, and then you can have it. That's what Jesus says. That's how he answers him, right? And herein lies the hard truth about this narrative, this whole text, for every single one of us in this room today. You're like, well, I'm not not wealthy. Well, guess what? Jesus isn't talking about that. He's talking about something deeper. He's talking about something far more common to man than that. No matter how good we think we are, no matter how rich we are, no matter how poor you are, no matter how much you scrape by, we all possess this one thing somewhere on some level in our lives that we are unwilling and unable to part with. If he pointed it out to us, it would hurt. Again, I don't know about you, but like, like it's easy to come into a text like this and feel pretty good about it. Because it's like, oh, I'm not going to be heavily convicted today. Because this is about rich people and I don't have any money. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. Like, like Jesus is always like an equal opportunity offender. Like the truth that he speaks at the level that he speaks it at, it's, it's just he's always going to find the tooth. Right? 
And this is what he's doing here. The further that we get into this text, the more that we will begin to see that this has nothing to do with money. It is at this point that we start to realize that this text is not so much about being rich as it is about being idolaters. Idolatry, the word, sounds a lot like adultery, the word, doesn't it? In fact, they're directly related. They both imply a mistress being involved on the side of a primary relationship. And I know that I've had many of them when it comes to my relationship with God. Which brings us back to this commandment thing. I told you we'd come back to it. Jesus lists, if you notice, the six that he lists are the last six, if you were to open up to Exodus 20. He gives this guy the last six of the Ten Commandments, which have to do, we call them the commandments to men, or the commandments to our neighbor. So the first four commandments, if you haven't ever noticed, here's another bonus. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are between you and God. It's this relationship. The last six are between you and man. It's these relationships. Jesus chooses to give him the man commandments. Those six, right? Which deal with how we treat others. The first four have to do with how we deal with God. Jesus didn't mention the first four, in my opinion, because he knew he'd be dealing with them now. Do you see what I'm saying? He knew that they would be this man's final blow. And they are. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other God besides me. This dude just failed it. That's exactly what Jesus called him on. Right? What was this confident, accomplished man's response? When the young man heard this, he went away, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. First commandment broken, and he knew it. It's part of the reason he walked away, sorrowful. The other reason he walked away is because he just discovered the one thing money, his mistress, cannot buy. Cannot buy. Right? He discovered who his greatest God was, and the irony is that it is God who exposed it. It is God who exposed it. Crazy stuff. 23-24. Let's go. Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, so homie walks off. Jesus is sitting there like with his disciples, right? And he says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty can a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, Jesus says. Um, That statement would have, we say, oh, that's kind of a cute little analogy that just talks of impossibility, which it it does. Like the point is that it's impossible. But 2,000 years ago, if you were his disciples standing there hearing this, this was actually comedic. Um, They probably actually would have chuckled at this. This would have been a joke. This would have been sense of humor. Um, because it's so ridiculous, right? Uh, which is kind of weird because of the circumstance that just happened. <laughs> it was pretty heavy. This dude just walks away, right? And he cracks a joke, right? Um, and so it'd be this big thing that they write on, uh, fitting through this thing that's maybe that big. Now, here's another. Let me just shoot this out there. A lot of you have probably heard from 
scholars that the, the, uh, the eye of the needle was this little separate window box that sat uh, right next to the gates that you would enter to the temple yard, okay? That the Jews would call it the eye of a needle. And so everyone puts the focus on this little basic, like this little window box that men can't even fit in that were right next to the main gates to the temple. And said, so, oh, it'd be like getting a camel through there. The problem is that when Luke um, actually communicates this story, because it's in all the synoptic gospels, the rich young ruler, the, the, the word he actually uses to translate needle is a medical instrument. So we, we can go ahead and not try to be cool by thinking too Jewish. He's talking about something really, really small like a, metal, like a needle. Okay? That's a bonus too. All right, good. Oh, you're welcome. You're not going to be better for it, but interesting, right? Um, so, so, so this would be like saying, basically, like t- today, this would be like saying it would be easier for a car to drive through the middle of a toilet paper roll, okay, than for a rich person to enter heaven. Like it, it would be kind of a joke like that, right? Um, which is a ridiculous impossibility. That's the point, which the disciples rightly understand to be the point of Jesus' statement, and they even take it one step further. Look at verses 25 and 26, our final two verses. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So their response is not, wow, like nobody who has money is going to be saved. Their response is, who at all can be saved? Like if if they can't be saved, then who in the world, period, is able to be saved? So it's not not just the rich, it's anybody who, who, like an impossibility for anybody and everybody. And the reason why they went this way Right? Why they thought this way is because in their day, if you had a rich countryman, if you had a wealthy Jew, uh, you were looking at someone more apt in the commoner's mind to be received and favored and accepted by God. That's how they looked at wealthy people and rich people back in that day. If you had money, then you were more apt to get into eternal life or to get into heaven. And the reason is because if you had money back then, then more of that money was going to the temple. More of that money was going, like, like greater alms were going to the poor. Like greater sacrifices, more expensive sacrifices were, were uh, being bought and purchased in the temple yard for atonement going on in the sacrifices. You see what I'm saying? So your money was buying you greater things for God, which meant greater favor. This is how they thought, right? And so, and so they actually take it the opposite of, of how we do, and they're like, who, like who in the world can, can be saved? So the rich were not, looked at as having, uh, <clears throat> were not looked at as having a handicap to God, but an advantage, an advantage to getting to God. Thus, if it's an impossibility for the rich to enter the kingdom, it's a greater impossibility for the rest of us to enter. That's what we're seeing here, right? That's how the disciples um, absorbed this, the average commoner. Who then can be saved is the question, period. Who then can be saved? 
So in their minds, nobody can enter at this point. Nobody can enter, right? And it is here once again that the narrative continues to go from being about the wealthy, money, to being about the human race. Everybody. All of us. Each of us. And this is confirmed in the response that Jesus gives. Yes. With man, any man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I praise God that this verse is here. Um, is this law or gospel? You guys, are, you guys are getting it. It's gospel. There is no doubt that this is one of the greatest, most comforting, most relieving, most hope-giving statements that we, the law-breaking, idolatrous sinner, has in the entirety of Scripture. The entirety of Scripture. With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. If you want a life verse, you were talking about some of this earlier, Rick, look no further. Stick this on your fridge. Look at this every day. I'm serious. Look at this every day, right? Uh, He's not speaking law to us. He's speaking gospel to us. This statement by Jesus takes us out from under the law and it leads us towards something that's actually good news. That's what gospel is. It's good news. What that guy walked away sorrowful over was law, which is not good good news. It's you have to go do something you're incapable of doing. But here we have something that's actually good news because it's something that's done for us. Oh man, I'm so, I'm so lost without this. I'm so screwed. It is an, an impossibility that I will ever see the inside of heaven if not for this, that God made this impossible thing possible. We know that this is gospel because Jesus is no longer speaking do. He's speaking done. He's speaking done, right? He's speaking of that which rescues us from the law of go do this and go do that. And then come back and I'll give you some more to go do. And we'll see how you do with it, right? No, that's not good news. Those are rocks. Those are boulders in the bag that you and I have been carrying around all our lives that just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And Jesus is taking the rocks out. He's lightening our load and causing us to be free to know God. That's the gospel and that's the good news. He's speaking this for our hope. In fact, he's not only speaking this for our hope. Ponder this. He's even speaking this for the hope of the rich young guy who's already walked away. Sorrowful. See, the solution for you and I also became his. Right? It doesn't have to end there with him walking away sorrowful. And maybe it didn't. Maybe that guy's going to be there because of what God did. Right? With man, salvation is impossible, but with God, it's been made fully, fully possible. And you and I sit here today as unworthy as we are to testify that that is true that that is true. He has provided a way through Jesus, the good teacher, right? Who is and was God with us, God among us, God making up the difference for us, God redeeming us, 
God receiving us, God saving us, God purchasing us, God recovering us from ourselves when all seemed lost. When we were yet in our sins. When we were yet out whoring around with our idols. When we were still cheating on the one true God with all of our mistresses, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And so I hope you're seeing this because this repeats over and over and over again in everything. I'm not, it's not just David being crazy. I know that I'm crazy. I don't think I'm crazy about this. I hope that you're seeing this pattern over and over again of law and what it does and gospel and what it does. We must know the difference or we will come up with a convoluted gospel. However, they are both necessary, law and gospel, to bring us to him. You must know you're a sinner to go to the doctor. Otherwise, you ain't going to go. Law does that. The law kills us. It sends us away uh, sorrowful like this young man. And the gospel brings us back hopeful, joyous. That's how it works. Bottom line, you... Me, none of us are saved here today in this room because we left all of our idols to follow Jesus. We are saved because God in the person of the Son hung on the cross and paid for even our idolatry. That's why we're here. Now that we're born again to a living hope and we have the third person of the Trinity living in us, we do hate our idolatry now. But make no mistake about it, you are this man, even though your bank account might be empty. And the only difference is God. And this is the hope of the world. This is the hope of the nations. This is the hope of your family. This is the hope of your neighbors. This is why we come here and we have this reinforced to us over and over and over again. This is good news. If we read it like Jesus intended it. Lord, thank you for doing everything for people who don't deserve anything. Thank you for an overwhelming love that I do not understand. Even to this day, I don't get it. I don't get what you see in me. But I receive it fully, and I thank you. I thank you that I'm not where I was on the way to where I was on the way to. I thank you, God, for having mercy on me and and bathing me in good news. Thank you for taking the rocks out of my bag so that I can be liberated from sin, death, and Satan. And I pray, God, that that we would be carriers of this good news to whomever will listen. And we ask it to your glory. Amen.